Okay, good morning, and uh, welcome everyone to the uh, Kol Yom Rishon in Los Angeles. We're really excited to be launching our first of these as a part of the inauguration, part of the opening ceremony, the opening week of the uh, Jack and Gita Nagel YU uh, Community Kolo. Uh, we're thrilled to have uh, a, a nice crowd here, Baruch Hashem, to hear Debrei Torah on a holiday weekend. It's not so simple to get a big crowd. When I, um, when I was looking into this job and trying to find ways out of this job a few months ago. So I came on a short trip, three days. I met with like almost every Rav uh, in town. And one of the, re- the themes that was repeated over my uh, meetings was they said, you should realize that Los Angeles is not New York. In New York, they asked me, do you give any weekly shear? And I said, yeah, I give one weekly shear. I, g- I gave two weekly shear at the time. So they said, uh, how many people come to your shear? So I said, one of them, uh, 35 people come, and one of them, 60 people come. So they said, you should know. If you give Shiram in LA, you should be happy if six people come, which obviously they were wrong about, which also means we should probably bring out like a Rush Jeevan, a president every week if we want to keep this up. But uh, it's really a pleasure and it's really, it's just exciting to launch this program together with the entire community and to be able to bring these, uh, these personalities to the community and hopefully to the beginning of a long, uh, a long relationship with the yeshiva, which goes far into history, but hopefully will extend and uh, amplify over the next months and uh, years. The Pasuk in the Parsha, we read this uh, just a few days ago in Parsha Shoftim, we read that the Melech, the king, has a special mitzvah. He has to write for himself a Sefer Torah. Rabbi Per spoke about this in his Thursday Parsha Chabura. A person who's a Melech, a king, has to write for himself a Sefer Torah. When he's sitting on his throne, someone here wrote the translations, it's T-H-R-O-W-N. This is for English class, we need to work on that as a throne. When he's sitting on his throne, so the king is the Kasavloas Mishne Hatorah Hazos. He has to write his second uh, Sefer Torah, Al Sefer Milfnea Kohan and Vim. Says the Pasak, the Haisa Imo, the Sefer Torah should be with him, the Karavo Kol Yemechayov. And he should read from the Sefer Torah his entire life. Now it's interesting, the Pasik is telling us a very simple idea. The Haisa Imo, he should keep that Sefer Torah on his person with him, by his side, exactly what that means. Is it wrapped around his arm? Is it near him? But it's somehow in the near vicinity. The karavo kol and he should read from it. That's a very simple message, but listen to the words one more time. The hayasa imo, the sefer ha-Torah, Torah is a lashnekeva, it's feminine. So the hayasa imo, the sefer Torah should be with him in the feminine. The karavo kol But then the Pesach says that he should read from it, from the sefer Torah, bo, a lashon of zachar, a masculine word referring to the Sefer Torah. So which one is it? Is the Sefer Torah haisa? Is it a feminine term? Or is it vo? Is it a masculine term? How do we refer to the Sefer Torah? The haisa or vo? So a beautiful, uh, a beautiful, the Ramban picks up on this and tries to answer the question based on a textual point. But there's a beautiful answer that's brought by some of the Mepharshim who explain as follows. That the Melech's mitzvah, most directly his mitzvah, is to write a Sefer Torah. And that Sefer Torah, Torah, Lashon Akeva, the haisa, Emo, it has to be with him. But if a melech properly writes the Sefer Torah, properly keeps it with him, imbibes the messages of the Torah, understands and ingrains those values within himself, he becomes imbued with that Sefer Torah, its messages, its dinim, its mitzvos. And when the melech becomes filled with the Torah that's v'haisa imo, then it's v'karavo. Then he's reading not the Sefer Torah, but himself. He becomes a chetza shel Torah. He becomes part of the Torah. He becomes one with the Torah that was written for him. If he keeps the Torah with him, then it could be the Karavo, then it could become part of him, and he can read almost from himself, from his own heart, all of the Deir Torah that are ingrained on his uh, Neshama. Ever since Rabbi Berman has uh, taken over the presidency of YU and become the Melech of our uh, community, of our community in Washington Heights, and our community of Yeshiva University, really across the world, he has done two very, very important, poignant things. First of all, he's written a Sefer Torah. He's distilled the messages and the values that we've been trying to articulate for so many years. The five Toros, the core values that the yeshiva has been really trying to pitch for forever, since its inception, but we never quite had the words to say so. Harry Byrne has done his, has done his uh, utmost to try to share that message, and he's written a Sefer Torah for all of us to try to read. But he's kept that Sefer Torah with him, He's carried it everywhere he's gone. And now if you look at Rabbi Berman, you listen to him speak, you realize it's different. It's not like the first years where he was still trying to formulate everything. It's the Karavo Kol He bespeaks the Sefer Torah. He bespeaks the values that he speaks about. He represents Torah. He represents the values that we believe in in our yeshiva and in our community. And it's an honor to have a leader, a melech like that, who writes the Sefer Torah, keeps it with him, speaks it for us, and also bespeaks it to us. And with that introduction, I'd like to call Rabbi Berman to please uh, take the Amud and uh, share the Torah with us.
You're amazing, John. Really, that was amazing. Rishus Rabbi Mori, Rabbi Willig, Rishus, our wonderful alum, and someone for whom uh, we are so proud. Rabbi Ari Safran and the incredible work that Ari does here in Yula in the Los Angeles community. Rishus, the Rosh Kolel, Rabbi Ona Steinitz, who's um, Character and erudition has simply captured uh, everyone who he teaches and in this community in such a short time, the feedback that I've gotten, just the beginning of so many uh, wonderful things to come. Uh, Rishos, the Nagel family, uh, for whom this uh, incredible kolel uh, is named after all of our dear friends in the Los Angeles community, our broader Yeshiva University community, are my colleagues, Russ Shulkis, who's here with me. Just always a joy to spend time with you, Russ, on our many, many travels. And especially, of course, our dear students, the Chavri Kolel of this Kolel uh, in, uh, in Los Angeles, the Yeshiva University Kolel in Los Angeles. Uh, dear friends, we have entered into a very serious uh, month. You know, I don't know about you, but every time uh, when we come to Elul and I hear the chauffeur blown, it is truly an awakening. It's shaking. And that's true if I hear the chauffeur blown before L'David Hashem Ori or after L'David Hashem Ori. In either case, there's an awakening. And there's a seriousness. There's a seriousness of the moment as we approach Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Now, I'm reminded of a conversation I had uh, a while ago when I was rabbi of the Jewish Center uh, with one of my congregants who said to me that at every crossroads of his life, at any major decision that he has to make, he turns to his father to ask him for his advice. Now, what's so fascinating about this is that as the rabbi of the shul, I know, because I buried the father three years previous, that the father is no longer alive. So what is it that he means, that he turns to his father for advice? And he said to me that his father's image is so sharp in his mind, the diukno shel aviv, that he can have conversations and he still carries on conversations with his father. And in every crossroads he faces, he turns to his father and he speaks to him and he hears the answer. You know, ostensibly there's no line as harsh and final as life and death. But in reality and in our tradition, that line is actually blurred. We all have people who are precious to us, who have passed away. How important of a role do they still play in our lives? How influential are they still in our decisions? And it's this time of year that we think about this. You know, when we get to Elul, there's a minag, there's a custom to go visit the cemetery. And it's all in, in the spirit of this question of life and death, of the people that influence us the people that we remember, the people that still play a central role in our lives. And I think that this uh, theme, which is so fitting for Hell and Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, actually is central to what we're doing here at the Skola. Allow me to explain. If you look at source uh, in your source sheets, one of the most um, prominent uh, symbols of the holiday season you find in source number one. Does everybody have source sheets? We have an extra one. Have an extra one. Amar Rebbe Avo, Amru Malachei Asharet Lefnei Hakadosh Baruch Hu, Rabbonu Shalolam, 
It's a famous question that the angels turn to God and they say, why is it that we do not sing, that the Jews do not sing Hallel on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur? They say Hallel on other Shal Shurgalim on all other holidays. Why don't they say Hallel on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur? Amar Lahem, God answers, Efshar Melech Yoshev Akiseidin, Vesifrei Chaim, Vesifrei Mesem, Psuchem Lefanav, Vesrol Omrim Shira. Is it possible? Is it possible that while the Sifrei Chaim, Sifrei Mesim are open before the king, that Am Yisrael is going to say Shira? They're going to sing? It's a fascinating image. The Sifrei Chaim, Sifrei Mesim. What does it mean that the Sifrei Chaim, Sifrei Mesim are open before God? What would you say? What does that mean? Sifrei Chaim, Sifrei Mesim are open before God. What does that mean? Yeah. Book of the living people and the book of the dead people because he talked about that. <laughs> that's great. Okay, that's good because I had so many things to say. Now I can move past. So, the book of the living people or the book of the dead people? What do you mean? I can just ask Rabbi Steinmetz. As opposed to giving a say for mothers, it should say Chayim, it should say mothers, but it doesn't. It's Chayim and Mason. We still have a connection. Okay, so one approach, before you get to the, the great Kiddush that we're going to talk about, which is amazing, is it's the book of life and the book of death, which appears in the next Gemara, if you look at source number two. Ama Rabbi Krispadai, Ama Rabbi Yochanan, Shlosh is from Niftachem Barosh Hashanah, Echad Shal Rosham Gemurin, Be'echad Shal Tzadikim Gemurin, Be'echad Shal Benonim, Three books appear open for Rosh Hashanah. One of Rosh Hashanah Gemurim, the other of Tzadikim Gemurim, and the other Benonim. Tzadikim Gemurim nechtavim v'nechtam la'alter l'chaim. Rosh Hashanah Gemurim nechtavim v'nechtam la'alter l'mita. Benonim tzwim on Rosh Hashanah ba'ad Yom HaKippurim. Zachu nechtam l'chaim, lo zachu nechtam l'misa. The simple pshat of Chris Padai is that on Rosh Hashanah towards Yom Kippur, God decides your fate. Will you be written in the book of the living? Or will you be written in the book of the dead? Whatever that means. But that your fate is somehow decided on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Another approach that was advanced by Rabbi Soloveitchik is that Sifrei Chaim, Sifrei Mesim isn't the book of the living and isn't the book of life and the book of death. But the book of living and the book of the dead. And this is a very important aspect of Yom Kippur that, ha- that shows up in actually in Armin Hagen. If you look, for example, in source number three, that we're no egg to uh, make a neder to give staka on Yom Kippur for the mason. And to mention their neshamov, because the dead also receive kapara on Yom Kippur. So what does that mean? So first of all, this minag, what is this minag? How do we do this minag ourselves? What do we do? So Yisker. So this is the minag of Yisker. The minag of Yisker is an old medieval Ashkenaz minag. It dates back, I think the earliest finding is the Machzor Vitri. If you look at source number four, the Machzor Vitri is Rashi's Talmud. Uh, and he writes, "Poskim staka barabim alachayim alamesim. Ain poskim staka lamesim b'chol eretz Ashkenaz rak hayom." Now we say Yisker how many times a year? Four. What are the four times we say it? Yom Kippur and the Shol Shrugal. We say it four times a year, but actually Yom the Yisker started as only being said on Yom Kippur. And Shol Shregalim, they also started mentioning um, at Nishamot. Uh, different scholars suggest the reasons for it, perhaps post-Crusades, uh, people in the community getting killed, why they started doing that, and giving staka and neder, and then it merged into one, and it became Yisker for the four holidays. But actually at its core... 
Yisker was only mentioned during uh, um, uh, on Yom Kippur. And it spread. It spread from France. You can look, I gave it a little bit of a sense of where it spread to. And uh, source number five, it moved to Provence. Once you get to the Orzerua already in the 13th century. So the Orzerua writes in source number seven, Osam b'nei ha'yishuvim shabam l'kila b'rasham yom kippurim, u'maskirim neshamos v'nodrim staka, hol v'chok kavuhu v'chol ha'mikamot. It's a chok kavua. Once you get to the 13th century, the Orzerua can say it's a chok kavua v'chol ha'mikamot. Like it's spread. It's been all throughout Ashkenaz, Provence, People were saying Yisker, they're maskirin neshamos on Yom Kippur. Now, this, is, it, this led to a number of uh, questions and problems, um, and actually theological problems. Does this make any sense to you, that you're doing kapara for the mesim? So if you look, for example, in source number eight and nine, this is a question that came up as early as the Gaonim. Um, we have uh, Rabbeinu Hai talk about it. And uh, his father, uh, Rabbeinu Shrira. So we're talking now about 11th century and earlier. And this isn't about Yizker per se. It's a different context. Uh, not about Yizker. But about the fundamental underpinnings of Yizker. So look, for example, at the underlines. It says, in source number 8, Yomar, this was the question that was asked to Rav Hai. V'cheinim Yomar etaneshana meischar zchuta leploni. V'cheinim Yomar macharti tainizu ashana bekach lekach leploni. V'yiknu kinyan alzeh hayeshana laoto shenote in lo klum. So the question is, are you allowed to give over your zchuyot? Can you sell your merit? Meaning, could it be that one person does an act and another person gets the benefit? And apparently in those days, and this is a question from uh, Rabbeinu Nisim, so this is sent from Karwan back to uh, Bavel, um, back to uh, Pumpadisa. There, apparently there were people who were selling, were saying, listen, I'm going to fast, I'll do Bahab, you pay me, and you can get the schus. I'll do the fasting, and you get the merit for it. Okay? It was a, it was a uh, financial deal. Now, it was actually something people have heard that's similar. What is similar to that? Yisachar Zvon. People have heard of the concept of Yisachar Zvon. That you do... You see advertisements for this, right? Can you sell schuyot to somebody else? Exactly. So, what is this whole thing that your what, your actions are affecting somebody else's chelik? Uh, okay. Not to mention when you talk about what we're going to get to, which is their chelik and olam haba. Like, what does that even mean? How does that work? So, the gaonim and this line were very against this, and this is what. Uh, uh, Rav Hai said, Kachri Inu, if you look at the underlines, Kachri Inu ki dvarim elu hevel, she'ein l'smoch aleim, this is nothing, you cannot rely on this, there's no such thing. Ve'eich yal alev ish ki scharo shelzeh al ma'asim tovim shasai yelazeh, how could it be that someone would think that the schar I get for my ma'asim tovim, I can sell over to you. Just like you can't throw your Averos and say, listen, I'll do the Averos and he'll get it. He'll get the, 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 the demerit. Right? Similar you can't say about about could it possibly be that you pocket your merits, like in your in your uh, and you carry it with you, that you can distribute for a profit? Is that the concept of uh, a merits? 
Every single person is judged according to his own ways. And then, if you look further, Rav Shri Ragon brings it exactly to this question. They ask the question by the underlined at source number nine, is it possible, Shinatan Staka, can somebody in their lives give staka to affect somebody else's olam haba? Is that possible? That was the question asked him. And uh, Rav Shri going to differentiates because they're two separate things. He said, if let's say somebody owes, let's say somebody's father owes money, and the question is, does the son pay for the father dies, son pay? So he said, there are two things. You could pay the chov. God forbid if somebody stole, you could pay back what was stolen. And that for sure. But fundamentally, one person here can affect olam haba there. They talk about praying for maybe a patsadic praise. It could be, it could lighten a gzardin in shamayim. But the, the actions that you do in this world cannot affect what happens for somebody else in another world. Um, and this is a, it's a fascinating theological uh, question, you know, both about Yisachar's Zvon or about this whole concept of Yiskar, of giving staka that affects somebody, somebody else. I remember I had, um, when, I, when I started my presidency, so I came into my office, and I needed uh, to, uh, you know, set up the office. And we have a very generous uh, lay leader who said to me, you need uh, your svarim. And all my svarim were in Israel. I came from Israel. I moved to Israel 15 years ago. Live in uh, Gush Etzion. Came back for uh, uh, this position on the Shlichut uh, Aruka. And, um, uh, and I needed uh, svarim in my office. So he said, "Let me. I'm going to buy all this farm. I'll buy all this farm, and your for your office, but with one condition: the chus of what you learn comes to me." So I'm like, you know, I just didn't want to make a false deal. So I'm like, you could definitely buy all this farm. Let's leave this chuyot Hashem to figure out. And this whole idea of of trucking in chuyot, you know. Not something that Rav Hai and Rav Shira were comfortable with. Not something that we, uh, you know, could wrap our heads around to understand. And it really cuts to, uh, you know, core issues about what we think about mitzvot and averot. You know, is this like lists, is like laundry lists, like a check, a checkbox? You know, you're building up a bank account. Is that how you think about when you do mitzvot and averot? It's like a bank account. Or is it more telling about your character? Right? The mitzvah and Averod are there to affect who you are. You know, if you do mitzvot and you become a better person, so then when you move on into the Olam HaEmes, so you're deserving of greater reward. But not because you have a greater bank account, but because of who you are. Okay, this is, this is a... Fascinating. If you go through Gemara's, it's a fascinating uh, issue. And different um, thinkers throughout the ages have taken different positions on this, also in different religions. And it deals a lot with how to get kapara, how to get atonement. The whole issue of tzedakah in history, charity in history, um, going back to uh, uh, the time probably pre-Tanaim, is very much intertwined with this question. That, uh, that Staka as the, as, as this, as the savior from punishment is very tied to this, like, because you owe, like your bank account is filled with demerits, you, you know, but by paying, you could balance out the account. Like, there's a lot of fascinating issues, uh, meta-issues that come, uh, that come to this. But back to our question of Yisker. I want to get back to Yisker. So Rav Shririgo and Rav Haigon, they weren't in love with this practice, but it did um, flourish in Ashkenaz. And the question is, what's it based on? How is it 
that one person does a mitzvah on this world, let's say giving tzedakah, and he affects what happens in the next world. So if you look at the Sefer Chassidim in source number 10, uh, 12th, 13th century, uh, the Hasidic Ashkenaz in Germany. Um, so they wrestle with this question. They wrestle with this. And they look at the underlines. How could an action, which somebody else does in this world, bring kapara for somebody who's no longer alive? How could it be? How could it be? So he answers, The son is Mezake, the father. Okay, how do you understand this? What is he saying? How is the son Mezakeh his father? Yeah. By the fact that the action of the father okay, lives on after the father. In other words, in his life, he committed to um, educating his son, whatever like that, that that effect, and that's what Rabbi Steinitz was talking about, that that effect lives on beyond, and therefore that's Mezakeh. Okay, because the effect, exactly, the effect of the son, the effect of the father, lives on in the, in the son, and that's the, uh, and therefore the schut isn't on the, just for the, what the son does, but it can go back to the root cause. And that is what the Rav talks about in source number 11, about Sefer Chaim, Sefer Mason, about the living and the dead. The reason for continuing judgment for those who are no longer alive is that the consequences of a person's sins cannot always be immediately determined. For example, one may have raised a child without proper religious education. As a result, the child will later turn his back on Judaism, which will in turn result in the assimilation of his own children and grandchildren. Similarly, if a parent did indeed provide his child with a good religious education but with minor deviations, the consequences may not be evident for generations even though the parent has died, therefore he has rejudged every Rosh Hashanah for the accumulated consequences of the negligence of his child's upbringing. The dead are judged in every Rosh Hashanah for actions whose consequences were not realized until that very year. So a person then is judged, not just in his own life, what he did in his life, but afterwards on Yom Kippur, there's another judgment. It's not just a judgment for the Chaim, but there's also a judgment for the mason. And the judgment, how could the mason change? They haven't changed anything. So it's not that they change, but you change. And what you do then looks back consequentially on what you were taught. And therefore you can fill the account, if you will, of those, that, of those who passed away by your actions. Similarly, when it comes to Yisker, which is giving staka in memory of, so if it's uh, someone who taught you the value of staka, somebody who taught you the importance of giving staka, somebody who fueled within you the sense of chesed, that's the, the, the schus. So then when you give it, it's not just about you, but it's also telling about the person who taught you. Yes. Yeah, I was wondering if there's a distinction between uh, doing acts on behalf of parents, because you still have Kibbut Arba Ein, um, and just generally benefits for others, because somebody's parent is dead, but you still have the fear of doing Kibbut Arba Ein, right. even if there are no parents. So, in a sense, so doing these actions... It's a great question. Does the mitzvah of Kibbut Arba Ein apply even after somebody passed away? There's still a mitzvah of kibbut aveim. It's a very good, it's a very good question to uh, uh, to flesh out. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, and what we're talking about is separate and apart from the mitzvah of kibbut aveim, how you act as a reflection of your parents is an effect 
not just a separate mitzvah of them, but is in effect telling about them. And I want to, we'll flesh it out more, yeah. Is the Rav limiting this notion to relatives? In other words, there is this concept of kibudah, pekeda, bona, bona, badim. Would the Ashkenazim say, well, that's true, but it may not necessarily apply to somebody who wants to buy somebody else's uh, svarim, or is this broad enough to apply even in the non-relative situation? I, I think it's a fascinating question. Like, I know for Yisker, like, there are times when rabbis try to keep everybody in. They say, even when you don't have a parent, you can say Yisker for anybody. Which is true, you can say Yisker for anybody. You can give stuck up for somebody's memory. The question of, theologically, does that, uh, you know, if you have a random person, I mean, you can actually, you could argue, uh, you could come up with the argument. I mean, if they inspired you, if their name inspired you to do this, even that would work. Let's say, God forbid, a victim of terror. Somebody, I mean, you have something that Something inspired you to do it. I, I could see. We could figure out how uh, how it comes. I wanna. Uh, we don't have that much time. I want to highlight to you that this isn't just about um, the tshuva. This isn't just about kapara for the matim. This is actually goes to the core of what tshuva means. What does it mean to do tshuva? So there's a famous uh, distinction in the Gemara between tshuva me'ava and tshuva me'yira. That there's a tshuva that wipes away sins, and there's another kind of tshuva that turns sins into schuyot, into merit. And everybody wonders, what does that mean? How can you possibly turn sins into merit? You can, maybe you can wipe it out, but how all of a sudden could it become schuyot? So if Salvechik explains, if you look at source number 13 in Alachik Man, the Rav writes that the main principle of repentance is that the future dominate the past and there reign over it in unbounded fashion. Sin as a cause, and as the beginning of a lengthy causal chain of destructive acts, can be transformed underneath the guiding hands of the future into a source of merit and good deeds into love and fear of God. The cause is located in the past, but the direction of the development is determined by the future. Great as repentance where deliberate sins are accounted as meritorious deeds, the sin gives birth to mitzvot, the transgression to good deeds. Let me explain. We have a concept in the Gemara of that sin causes other sin. And mitzvah, mitzvah, and if you do mitzvot, it causes other mitzvot. And the Rav says there are two aspects about each act. There's the act itself, the Avera, it's bad. But there's also the chain, the causal chain that it sets off for the future. But if you put yourself on a path that starts with sin, it leads downwards and spirals downwards negatively. Alternatively, if you are on a path of mitzvot, of ger mitzvah, so you take a positive path and then it spirals upwards. What we do when you do tshuva, real tshuva, is you don't, wipe away your past. You don't ignore the fact that you did this Avera. You're sitting there and you're thinking, take for example, um, you're sitting on, on Yom Kippur and you're going through the list of Alchets. There's so many Alchets. It's really, uh, it's amazing. I remember when I was uh, the rabbi of the Jewish Center, I, um, I said there was one time a year, I don't want you to wait for my Amidah. Like they always waited to start the Kavod for the Amidah I said, don't wait for me. I want to take my own Kibra Amida for myself. Please don't wait for me. And then, when I came out during the break, some one of my Balabatim came over and said, listen, I thought we had such a pious rabbi. Now, I'm worried. Like, what's all this tshuva you're doing? Like, what? What are those sins are you, are you talking about? If they only knew that I was really dominating for them. But, <laughs> um, uh, but, the, uh, but the idea... Of, of you having charata for your chet and charata for your sin, but what do you do? Do you just pretend you didn't do the sin, or you do, or do you think about why you did it? You know what what led me to do it, and then how do I then take that aspect of whatever led me to do it and channel that uh, positively? How do I use the sin, not ignore it, not wipe it away, but how do I understand it? 
how do I embrace it? How do I see it as part of me and then rechannel that to something uh, positive, to something good? You know, one example, if you think deeply, you know, just as an example, it's an easy one because we all do this. I mentioned, we, I mentioned our campaign that why use raising $613 million? We already have 250 Baruch Hashem. A lot of people are, are excited about giving us uh, for the campaign and we're building the yeshiva and, uh, uh, you know, people readily understand how essential it is to have a strong yeshiva university. When I go to people, I said, we're raising $613 million. said, you could pick any mitzvah you want. It's only $1 million a mitzvah. You could pick any mitzvah you want. And it's interesting with the reaction. Some people pick Vahaftarecha Kamocha, and that's beautiful. Some people are picking Lotignov, and I'm starting to get worried. Like, why? <laughs> so one, one area that we could all readily embrace, let's say, is Lashon Hara. Everyone say, that's a pretty good one. It's Lashon Hara. So you could say to yourself, okay, why am I speaking badly about others? Okay, forget that question. Why do I enjoy speaking badly about others so much? And what is this telling about me? What is this telling about my character? And if you, if you use the fact that you're enjoying speaking Lashon Hara and you stop and pause and evaluate and use that, okay, and then develop a better self-understanding, so that you can then channel that into the positive, into what's good. You know, if I am so insecure that I need to pull other people down in order to make myself feel good about myself, then how do I identify that insecurity in that area and then build it up from the positive? How do I do that? You know, that's... And that's tshuva, because then what you do is you take the act of Lashon Hara, the sin... And you use it as a trigger to good. That's turning the bad into a merit. Because you've changed that you've used it to change the trajectory of your life. So that now you're doing more mitzvot, you switch the trajectory to something positive. Yeah, that's tshuva. That's real tshuva. It's not to wipe out, as the Rav said, your years of your life and pretend it didn't happen. It's to embrace who you are, and then to channel it positively. And that's a lot of work. Like, you know, it's, it's so good that we're having this Kol uh, Yom Rishon, or Kol uh, Yom Shani, and Yom Rishon, it's like the, the, the Shivas Yomay Maluim, I guess. And you don't know if it was the eighth day, the first day, or the tenth day in this case. But um, the idea that we still have time before Shani Yom Kippur, so the work can start can take place. You can't get to Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur and do it. You have to start earlier. You have to start identifying what it is that you need to work on. You know, it's not when you get up to the list of al and you start thinking about it. You have to start thinking about it all throughout the year, but even now, especially now. What is it that you need to be working on? And then un- uncover it. Identify and uncover it. And explore it. And then follow it and then redirect it. You know, then you've taken the, the chait and you've turned it into something, into something, a mitzvah. And what's really amazing, this is what's amazing about the Rav's point, about the Book of the Living and the Book of the Dead, is that if you do that, you will not just affect your own kapara, but you'll affect the lives of those who are before you as well. I'll tell you a story. When I was younger, I grew up in Forest Hills in Queens, a couple of blocks away from my uh, grandparents. I remember one day, I was like, I don't know, eight or nine, I came to my grandmother, and every time I would walk into the house, my grandma was happy. Grandma happy, she gave me food, happy. One day, this is why I remember it so well, she was sad. I came in, and grandma, you know, and she was sitting there, and she was sad, and she was reflective. And I could tell she wasn't really talking to me. I'm like, Grandma, what, what's going on? What's on your mind? And she said, almost like to herself, you know, when, when we left Europe, we went the wrong way. We went west. 
instead of Gandhi's. What happens? My grandmother took the last boat out of Europe. The war. It's a famous boat, actually. The Babaji Rebbe was uh, on it as well. And she fled with her two little sons, uh, Meyer and Yudel. Uh, people now know my uncle Julie. Is Yudel? He came from Europe. This little boy. And uh, she fled to America. And that's where we grew up. And that's where our family was. Uh, uh, first Hartford, then New York. And she was reflecting that she took a wrong turn in her life. So that conversation stayed with me. I was eight years old. And it stayed with me. And I was thinking about it when I was bringing my son for use. When I was bringing my son to the army. All my sons, I have three sons of uh, army age, they all went to the army, they all learned Yeshiva Hezda. And as we drove to the base, which was an amazing experience as a father to bring your son to the army. And as we drove to the base, and all the boys were singing and dancing and embracing their uh, opportunity of defending the Dinat Yisrael, of playing their role in Jewish destiny, I thought of my grandma. And that by coming here, and by them being in the army, being in Israel, it changed her story. Because her story in her mind was that she was taking a step away from Israel. But through my children and their actions, she was actually taking a step closer to Israel. Because our actions define not just our own lives, but can redefine the lives of those who came before us. So, for example, if somebody who grew up totally not observant, suddenly, you know, we have actually stories like this. Story, they, somebody just told me the story. They started Googling, and they were interested in finding something about Torah, and they came to YU Torah. And from there, they became totally observant, went to uh, Stern, and it was Wayu Torah that brought them that brought them closer. So, what do you call somebody who? Uh, what term do you use for this person? Choser b'tshuva. He's a choser b'tshuva. In what sense were they choser? They never grew up religious. What does it mean they were choser b'tshuva? What does that mean? So we know if it wasn't them. It was their parents, it wasn't their parents. It was their parents, it wasn't their parents, it was their grandparents. Or their great-grandparents. Or their gra- At some point down the line, somebody, back to Moshe Rabbeinu and Harsinai, somebody was there. They are just being choser. They're being choser. They're returning. Okay, and that being Choser B'tshuva doesn't just change their story. It changes everybody's story who came before them. The power that we have in our lives is not just to define who we are, but it's to define the generations and generations of who have come before us. It's not just the book of the living that's opened. It's also the book of the dead. You know, and that sense of a personal identity is the core of what Judaism is about. If I asked you, when, when were you, uh, where are you from? When did you begin? You know, identity today is, is defined by a moment of a person's current feeling. But if I ask you, when did you begin? When did you start? It wasn't at birth. You didn't start at birth. You began with your parents and your grandparents. And when does your story end? It doesn't end at that. It continues. It continues on to your children and to your grandchildren. And I always say this about Yeshiva University. When people ask me, when, does, when did Yeshiva University begin? 
I get this question all the time because I speak about YU to non-Jewish audiences. And they asked me, they said, Rabbi, how is it when you speak about YU that you say it's 3,000 years old? Like, how could that be? When did you guys start? So I said, well, we date our beginning when Moses received the Torah at Sinai. That is when Yeshiva University began. And from parent to child and parent to child, the transmi- we have transmitted our tradition faithfully all the way through until this point. And we don't end until there's Geula, until there's redemption. You know, if Martin Luther King talked about the arc of the moral universe as long as it bends towards justice, we begin at Emmet, at Sinai, and we end at Geula, at Sio. And what we teach our students is how to bend that arc and to bring that redemption. Not just for the Jewish people, but for the world. And when you think of yourselves in longer terms, and I've spoken to other college presidents about this, that other college presidents, they have five-year strategic plans. I said, we also have five-year strategic plans, but you know what else we have? We judge success in thousand-year terms. When we think about success, we're not just thinking about tomorrow. We're thinking about what will be in a thousand years. And when we think about our past, I'm not just thinking about the hundred years of Yeshiva University's history. I'm talking about 3,000 years of Yeshiva University's history. And when faculty and other people ask me, Rabbi, why are you making decisions that's going to jeopardize all of the immediate success you've just had? I explained to them, you think that I'm making decisions? I'm not the decider, I'm not the executive here. It was decided 3,000 years ago. We're standing on Shorashim, we're standing on roots. I'm an implementer. This is not an executive decision. Right? We implement the values of our Torah. And we stand on 3,000 years of tradition. And when you stand on 3,000 years of tradition, I will tell you, you stand with much greater strength and confidence and that you're able to withstand the torrential winds and torrents of current circumstances. But that is the sense you need to carry with you. When I enter into rooms with other religions, I often am speaking to people who are 60, 70, 80 years old. I will tell you every time I feel like I am the oldest person in the room. Every time I feel that I am the oldest person in the room. Because we are standing on a much greater tradition. And it's that sense of confidence and values that need to infuse every decision of your life. Sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's hard. Every decision of your life has to be infused by Torah values. Everyone. And then when you make those decisions, it doesn't just impact your own uh, sense of self, but it impacts, and it's the lesson of the Rav, every generation before you. Because you were nourished, it tells you about the generations before you. It's not just the living that are being judged, but also the dead. And what the ultimate goal isn't just about your kapara or atonement for the past, but it's about building for the future. It's about transmitting our Masora to the next generation. It's about having them have, this, have the capacity and the values that whatever decisions they're going to face, and they're going to be very different than today, Right? When I think about our students, whatever issues are in the day, it's almost, you know, that's just an example. I don't know what you're going to be facing in 10 years. I don't know what you're going to be facing in 20 years. Yeah, but by example, you should be watching and learning. But how do you balance MS with chesed, with compassion? We have a Torah that's Torah emet and a Torah that's Torah chesed. How do you bring into the world kindness and love and compassion? Used with the full spirit of the Torah. 
Right? Whatever issues you're going to face in your future, it's that sense that must come. We start with Torah Emmet, we end with Torah Zion, we develop our potential, Torah Adam, both Adams, Adam 1 and Adam 2, and we bring it to life to Torah Chaim in a way with Chesed of Torah Chesed. That's what we're doing. And the way that we balance those values uniquely is what yeshiva is about and what our Mesorah is about. And Rav Shechter calls it normal Judaism. Rabbi Tversky calls it balanced. Rabbi Rosenzweig says Torah plus. It's all the same. It's all, it's all the same. You know, with nuanced differences, of course. But all the same about living a, a, a life that embraces all of the values of our Torah and seeing yourself as part of a tremendous chain deeply rooted, which allows us to be forward-focused. And these days in Elul, leading up to Roshani Yom Kippur, is a perfect time to think about your own lives and what you're doing by your actions to help your own development, which will affect not just your future, but will alter the past and impact generations and generations to come. And that's one of the blessings of this kolo. Because you have people here who stand for these values. You have people here who have been deeply immersed in our misora and our tradition and are primed and ready to bring it out into the community and into the world. And if you look at the past, the, the, the names that are on this kolo, you know, the Nagel family and the entire Los Angeles community that support this kolo, it's all about these pioneers who came to Los Angeles when it was nothing. And they built a community and we're all resting on their shoulders. And by our actions today, we're giving the nachas ruach of all those generations. And while at the same time, preparing the way for our children and grandchildren and generations to come. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day.